Chapter 8 of the Psychology of Religion by Edwin Diller Starbuck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8. The Conscious and Subconscious Elements in Conversion. 1. The Conscious Element Involved. In this chapter we may add one more to the many shades of meaning of the term conscious. We shall use the word in a very general, though fairly consistent way, to stand for the undifferentiated center at which the intellection and volition separate. It represents an element of purpose, insight, and choice, as distinguished from mere response to environment, reaction to stimuli, and blind determination. This question is not simply how much of conversion is willed, but how much of the process, as it is being wrought out, rises into consciousness. And, on the other hand, is there evidence that part of the process is worked out automatically, by the nervous system, or as Oliver Wendell Holmes says, by a creating and informing spirit which is with us and not of us. There are evidences of the presence of both conscious self-direction and automatism in conversion. Among the evidences of the latter are the apparent smallness of the intellectual factor among the conscious motives to conversion, and also of the volitional element at the time of change. For example, during the conviction period, conscious following out of teaching was mentioned in only 10% of the cases, in response to a moral idea in only 17%, while imitation and social pressure were recognized in 32% of them. We have just seen that the conscious exercise of will was rarely mentioned as being central at the time of conversion, that an apparently spontaneous awakening was found to be the prominent factor in the change, increases the evidence that the process is automatic. Public confession may mean that the subject is driven by surroundings, the sense of forgiveness and that of oneness with God also generally indicate that the experience is worked out in the sphere of feeling. There are, however, many evidences of the presence of conscious purpose. It is often mentioned as a recognized factor. Besides, the cases show that public confession is often made in spite of adverse surroundings. Self-surrender generally means that the subject is drawn between two possible courses and must decide between them. The persistent struggle often shown during conviction, sometimes towards a definite end and sometimes toward a dimly defined one, indicates the presence, perhaps, of incipient ideation and volition. In order to arrive at an estimate of the conscious concomitant, the cases were studied through with that alone in view. The result of it is the most uncertain of all the attempts at tabulation. It necessitates evaluation at every point so that the source of error is very great. The table following, accordingly, has less value than those that have proceeded. A valuable check on the possibility of such evaluation was that another person worked through the cases and obtained practically the same results as those of the writer. The cases were separated into five classes, as determined by the prominence of the conscious element. First, the ones in which it is absent or nearly so, these are largely cases of imitation, adolescent ferment and the like. Second, those in which it is small. Third, those in which the conscious and automatic forces are about evenly balanced. Fourth, in which there was apparently a predominance of insight and a moving along a clearly marked course. And lastly, those in which the conscious element seems without much doubt to be the determining factor. The following instances of each class will give an idea of the valuation. 1. Male, 15. It began largely as imitation. A friend told me I was not free from liability to divine displeasure. Female, 8. 
At camp meeting, I went to the altar with 20 others. In the uncertainty at the altar, I repeated after the leader, I believe him. I knew I was converted, and afterwards I had great comfort in Bible reading and prayer and in times of anxiety. 2. Female 11. From my earliest days I had wanted to be a Christian. I felt desire, unrest, and fear. Many were going forward at the revival. That made it easy for me. I made confession by speaking in meeting and felt the presence of God. Male 14. I was influenced by the example of father and mother. Besides this, I had a sense of duty. I was afraid of being lost and felt that I was not good, enough to become a Christian. I broke my pride and made public confession. 3. Female, 16. I became deeply convicted of sin. For three weeks I spent much time in prayer and had an awful sense of helplessness. Relief came during a revival. I made up my mind the Sunday before that I would rise for prayer. I think it came through my own thought and deliberate choice. Female, 14. I thought a great deal about the afterlife and knew I must decide. I had a sort of depressed feeling, and I engaged in prayer. Three days after making up my mind, relief came by feeling God's forgiveness. 4. Female, 14. I had an unsatisfied feeling and a craving for a higher life. I fought and struggled in prayer to get the feeling that God was with me. With the greatest effort, I endeavored to get some glimpse of light. While struggling for light, peace came to me through the darkness, and I felt at rest. Male 18. I wanted to make the most possible out of life and to exert the right influence over my pupils and over young people. It was also a divine instinct, gratitude for blessings received, that led me to make a personal choice. I decided in the matter at home that I would not only be partly right, but wholly right. Female 18. The change was purely in making up my mind that I would live as Christ would have me. Whether certain feelings came or not, I felt happy and satisfied. Male 12. It seemed only deliberate choice gradually growing and reaching its climax at conversion. The duty I owe to Christ, who had done so much for me, was the chief factor. My conversion was just to jump for the better in the direction of the gradual growth which had proceeded. According to the above standard of classification, these cases resulted as shown in Table 13A. It is seen from the table that there are a few cases only in which the conscious element is either absent or apparently the principal determining factor in the change. They arrange themselves in a series from the almost wholly externally determined conversions to those which come from clear insight and which are controlled largely by subjective forces. The males form a pretty regular series, there being about the same number in which the conscious element is largely present and largely absent, and they culminate at the point where the conscious and unconscious elements are equally commingled. The females fall more on the side of the automatic. Nineteen percent of the females, as against two percent of the males, belong to the class in which the conscious element is absent. The most frequent group is the second, in which the conscious accompaniment is somewhat small. The point of special interest is that most of the cases fall between the extremes, that is, in the conversion. The conscious and unconscious forces rarely exist separately, but usually act together and interact on each other. Age has much to do with the place in the series into which any case will fall. It will be noticed in the table that the average age of both males and females increases gradually with the increase of the conscious concomitant showing again that the spiritual awakenings in different stages of life doubtless 
have a very different content. 2. The unconscious or automatic element. The importance of the conscious element is not simply in its presence immediately at conversion. Without exception, the cases studied, no matter how suddenly the new life bursts forth, have antecedents in thought or action that appear to lead up directly to the phenomena of conversion. The picture seems to be that of a flow of unconscious life rising now and then into conscious will, which, in turn, sets going new forces that readjust the sum of the old thoughts and feelings and actions. Whether the flow of physiological processes first gives rise to the thought product, or whether the incipient conversion holds a casual relation to the flash of new life and activity, cannot be determined. So much is clear that before and during conversion, the two things go together and interact upon each other. The whole conviction period seems to be a disturbance in the automatic, habitual processes caused by the presence of an incipient, but still dim and confused idea. Life is continually prodded by forces from without. Reverses in life, death, the example of a beautiful personality, ideas from other people, the demands of established institutions and the like, are frequently mentioned as among the things which shake life from its self-content and lead it into a recognition of a larger world than its own. Although we have seen the spontaneous awakening type of conversion to be the most frequent, there is not a single instance of this type in which there have not been some antecedents in thought or action which may be regarded as causes leading toward the awakening. The way in which a thought or experience leaves its impress and works itself out in the sphere of some conscious is best shown by some typical cases. Female unknown age. A year before my conversion I had been to the altar, but felt no better. I wasn't ready to become a Christian. The following year, during revivals, I felt more in earnest than ever before. I went to the altar two nights in succession. I went in spite of my friends. A friend came and spoke to me, and it came over me like a flash of lightning that I was saved. I remember distinctly what different persons said to me afterwards. Here is shown an effort by an unripe nature, a year of perseverance, and at last, under favorable surroundings, the things thought for coming like a flash. The mental tension at the time of conversion is shown by the permanence of the impressions made on the senses. One young woman writes, The change came in the ordinary course. No one else had anything to do with it. I know no cause. But in describing the pre-conversion experiences, she says, The fears of being lost set me to thinking. I regretted my moral negligence. For six months, nothing gave me any rest, and I engaged much in prayer. Male 15. I felt self-condemnation at having done wrong. At the end of ten days, I went into my bedroom and prayed. Jesus, take me, is all I said. As I rose and walked across the room, it came to me that I was sincere and my prayer was real, and I believed my acceptance with God. Sometimes the experience which precedes the change is weeks and even months of intense thought struggle and prayer. Often the thought or act which sticks in one's consciousness and seems to prepare it for the awakening is very small. This may depend on one's ripening for the new experience. Male 19. Knowledge of sin had ripened into the sense of sin. At church, one sentence in the sermon caught my attention, though I was usually inattentive. The impression faded away immediately. Two days later, while in business, there was a sudden arrest of my thought without a consciously associated natural cause. My whole inner nature seemed summoned 
to a decision for or against God, and in five minutes I had distinctly formed purpose to seek him. It was followed immediately by a change, the principal manifestation of which was a willingness to make known my decision in hope of divine forgiveness. These antecedents to the change are numerous and various. They are determination to yield, longing, effort, performance of some act, serious thought, and the like. We should recall in this connection that spontaneous awakening is the most frequent conversion phenomena following effort in the direction of the new life. If we ask in what way these antecedents to conversion help work out a transformation of character, it will have to be admitted at the start that what happens below the threshold of consciousness must, in the nature of the case, evade analysis. It tends to fill in the chasm in our knowledge, however, to explain it in terms of the nervous system and its functionings. It is a generally accepted notion that every thought or feeling or volition involves some activity in the nervous system. In the language of Professor James, who has given the most lucid account of this point of view, there are mechanical conditions on which thought depends, and which, to say the least, determine the order in which is presented the content or material for her comparisons, selections, and decisions. And a new idea entertained means that a new connection between the two cerebral areas has been formed, or that there has been some fresh combination of nervous discharges in the cerebrum. If two ideas are brought together in consciousness, the condition underlying it is that two nerve tracts have functioned simultaneously, or in close sequence. One of the most certain of all the principles relating to nerve activity is that most of it goes on independently of conscious volition, just as the beating of the heart is carried on by the lower nerve centers without our being aware of it. So cerebral activity goes on automatically, even during reverie and sleep. New stimuli are constantly reigning in through the senses. Circulation and nutrition are storing up energy of different degrees of potentiality in different areas of the nervous system. Each discharge in the cerebrum becomes in turn a stimulus to the areas surrounding it. As a consequence, the nervous system is like a wind-swept lake. The elements of consciousness are recombining and perpetually taking on new coloring without our knowing it until the products start up into clearness. The difference between the conscious and subconscious elements is perhaps in the degree of resistance in the nervous system to the neural discharge which corresponds to a certain idea. If a discharge has little dynamic significance, or if it has become habitual and easy, the even flow of consciousness is not disturbed by it. If, on the other hand, an idea is difficult of realization, and at the same time involves a considerable fraction of the available nervous energy in a violent readjustment of the neural elements, it may be lifted up above the threshold of consciousness, and may have even momentous significance. Now, if our sketch of this aspect of mental life is true, we are in a position to see the relation between the longings and strivings, the perplexity and uncertainty, the seriousness and the like, which precede conversion, and the seemingly inexplicable outbursts of life which follow. It means that spontaneous awakenings are, in short, the fructification of that which has been ripening within the subliminal consciousness. Those phenomena we have designated antecedents to conversion may have significance in either of two ways. In the first place, they may be casual, in that they constitute new and foreign elements, which come in and directly lead up to the changed aspect of life which eventually appears. 
An instance of this kind may be found in the case quoted above in which the young woman went to the altar the year before her conversion without realizing the desired experience. This idea may have established an ideal which worked itself out meanwhile so that it came over her like a flash of lightning that she was saved. Secondly, an antecedent element may simply be an index of the surface of which is going on beneath, as in another case above, in which a sentence in the sermon that caught the young man's attention may have been an indication of the growth between the ripening of the sense of sin and the sudden but distinctly formed purpose to seek God. It will clear the matter up if we illustrate by a diagram the connection between the antecedents and the awakening. We shall begin with the most difficult case, that in which the awakening succeeds the characteristic depression and spiritual discontent. And, if that becomes clear, the rest will follow easily. In Figure 7, we shall let A, B, C, D stand for brain areas, or bits of experience, which are real to the person before conversion, viz. right conduct, wise teaching, wholesome affections, some budding idea, as the case may be, all of which, when taken together, hint some larger revelation, R, which is dimly felt. The dreamed-of ideal, R, becomes a new and disturbing factor in consciousness. When the mind is once disturbed, it cannot rest until harmony has been restored. It is like a new element coming to the physical organism, which must be assimilated as food or cast out like a splinter in the flesh, as a foreign substance. The mental state is that of the unwholeness, anxiety, and pain we have described. There is a beating around the bush, a wanting something and not knowing what. But now, under the emotional stress of a revival, or following the natural processes of growth, harmony is unexpectedly struck among the suggestions, M, N, O, P, of the bits of experience, A, B, C, D. The scattered ends seem to pick up and live. The condition is illustrated in figure 8. R becomes the more fuller, more adequate and organizing center. It is life on a new plane, a fresh insight, a larger outlook on the world. The process of regeneration becomes, from this point of view, the feeling of ease, harmony and free activity after the last step of assimilation and readjustment has been taken. Religious awakening is by no means a unique experience but falls in with the recognized facts of mental assimilation. The instances are numerous in solving problems, making inventions, reaching scientific conclusions, and the like. A person's feeling after an idea with unrest and perplexity until the result is finally presented to clear consciousness ready-made. The case of Sir William Rowan Hamilton's discovery of the method of quaternions is in point because of its similarity in most respects to the mental clarification which announces new religious insight. Hamilton writes, Tomorrow will be the fifteenth birthday of the Quaternians. They started into life, or light, full-grown, on the 16th of October, 1843. As I was walking with Lady Hamilton to Dublin, and came up to the Broughton Bridge, that is to say, I then and there felt the galvanic current of thought close, and the sparks which fell from it were the fundamental equations between I, J, K, exactly such as I have used them ever since. I pulled out on the spot a pocket book, which still exists, and made an entry on which, at the very moment, 
I felt that it might be worth my while to expend the labor of at least ten or it might be fifteen years to come. But then it is fair to say that was because I felt a problem at the moment solved, an intellectual want relieved, which had haunted me for at least fifteen years before. In this particular instance, the conviction period lasted fifteen years, accompanied by an intellectual want, until finally the galvanic current of thought closed, bringing with it what we have called a spontaneous awakening and relief. If we turn to the numerous instances of conversion, of striving to obtain a revelation, we shall find it a special case of the principles of unconscious cerebration and mental assimilation just considered, and shall arrive at the same time at some understanding of the function of the will in conversion. In the act of trying, the ideal life is more keenly felt than in the instance we have been considering, the condition of vaguely feeling after it. And some one course, say, BN of figure 7, is selected as the means of attaining R. After one exerts an effort, the fruition of it is accomplished by the life forces which act through the personality. It is a well-known law of the nervous system that it tends to form itself in accordance with the mode in which it is habitually exercised. It is only a slight variation on this law to say that the nervous system grows in the direction of the expenditure of effort. The unaccomplished volition is doubtless an indication that new nerve connections are budding, that a new channel of mental activity is being opened, and in turn the act of centering force, trying, in the given direction may, through increased circulation and heightened nutrition at that point, itself directly contribute to the formation of those nerve connections, through which the high potential of energy which corresponds to the new insight expends itself. On the mental side, this law is illustrated in the familiar instances of trying to recall a forgotten name, giving it up and having it flash across the mind at some unexpected moment, and of solving problems during sleep which have been struggled with unsuccessfully during the day. The mind seems to have a way of working ahead at its difficulties unconsciously. Dr. Smith, in using the Ebbinghaus series of nonsense syllables in the study of memory, finds that if one fails to recall some member of a given series, it is the forgotten member which pops up in the succeeding series, rather than the members which have been recalled, and which, being the best known, might be expected to be the first to recur. The mind has delivered itself of the remembered ones, and in that respect is at ease. The forgotten one, following the effort of the will to recall, blocks the free current of mental activity until it is worked out. This is what we have seen in conversion. The ideal dawns, the will is exercised in its direction. Failing, there is an unrest and distress. Finally, the ideal is unexpectedly realized. The function of the will in conversion, then, seems to give point and direction to the unconscious processes of growth, which, in turn, work out and give back to clear consciousness the revelations driven after. It is instructive to notice, as an illustration of how unconscious cerebral activity works out new changes, the instances in which the change of heart has been brought about during sleep. There are four such among our number. This is representative. Female 10. Something said by the minister at a funeral brought me under deep conviction. After going to bed, I wept long and bitterly and asked God to forgive my sins. The next morning I was in a new world. 
What I experience can only be known by one who has been born of the Spirit. This falls in line with the familiar instance of trying to solve some problem at night and finding it in the morning that the brain has done the rest during sleep. A music teacher of the writer's acquaintance says to his pupils, Just keep on trying, and some day, all of a sudden, you will find yourself playing. The agonizing to enter in may often be the only way to the new insight and a definite cause in bringing it about. Perhaps the longing to be so helps make the soul immortal. Insofar as this principle applies, it should emphasize for the religious teacher, or one in spiritual difficulty, the precept of patience, and should bring hope at the point of discouragement. Let one do all in his power, and the nervous system will do the rest. Or, said in another way, man's extremity is God's opportunity. This seems to be one of the central principles underlying the philosophy of Browning. All we have willed or hoped or dreamed of good shall exist, not its semblance but itself. The high that proved too high, the heroic for earth too hard, the passion that left the ground to lose itself in the sky, are music sent up to God by the lover and the bard. Enough that he heard it once, we shall hear it by and by. Have we withered or agonized? Why else was the pause prolonged, but that singing might issue thence? Although the exercise of the will is an important element in conversion, we are confronted with the paradox pointed out in the last chapter, that in the same persons who strive toward the higher life, self-surrender is often necessary before the sense of assurance comes. The personal will must be given up. In many cases, relief persistently refuses to come until the person ceases to resist or to make an effort in the direction he desires to go. Female, 19. I had two years of doubts and questionings. It was my disposition to look at everything intellectually. I found I must give myself up into Christ's hands. I stopped thinking about puzzling questions. I had faith in him and found peace. Female, 13. After seven days of anxious thought and meditation, I gave my heart to God, and he sent peace. The feeling came how I cannot tell. Male 15. After I had done everything in my power, it seemed that the change took place. I saw I had depended too much on my own power. Male 45. All at once it occurred to me that I might be saved too, if I would stop trying to do it all myself and follow Jesus. I determined right then to test his power and love. While to alter, I determined to live a Christian life the remainder of my days, whether I felt forgiven or not. Somehow, I lost my load. Male 15. I finally ceased to resist and gave myself up, though it was a hard struggle. Gradually, the feeling came over me that I had done my part, and God was willing to do His. At this point, we naturally feel ourselves closest to the mystery and conversion, and face to face with that aspect of the question where explanation, if it avails for anything, must throw some light on the whole process. Why can the new insight not be attained through one's effort? What is the new life which bursts forth at the point of self-surrender? What has faith to do in the process? We shall advance two or three considerations which should lead us a little way toward the answer. The personal will is likely to fail to attain the new life in the first place because it may be exercised not quite in the right direction. This will become clear by making a slight variation in figures 7 and 8 above as shown in figures 9 and 10. A, B, C, D 
as before, are the cerebral centers or organizing centers of consciousness, which represent the imperfect self. R is the true insight, after which the person is feeling his or her way toward the new scattered elements of the old personality are tending as indicated in MNOP. But in the nature of the case, the imperfect self cannot picture R so that it may really be the goal of his striving. These subconscious forces, the buddings of new life, have far outstripped the growth of mental analysis, so that there is lifted up before him as a cloud in a mist, an ideal towards which he longs and struggles, but he can never know R until it has blossomed out and has actually been lived. He is not able to appreciate the tendencies of growth, M-N-O-P, by way of consciously helping them along. It is a corollary of the principle of unconscious cerebration, which we have just been considering, that these tendencies must remain below the possibility of analysis. Consequently, the insights driven after fall short of the true revelation. This aim is represented by R1 in the figure, toward which the person strives, but is striving at a wrong angle. Doubtless, the trying has been in the right general direction, and has helped to carry the life in the vicinity of R, but there has been an aggravating discord between the line of personal effort and the normal trend of development. What must the person do? He must cease trying, he must relax, and let the nervous energy, which has been pent up and aching for some outlet of expression, seek its natural and normal channels. That is, he must fall back on the larger power that makes for righteousness, which has been welling up in his being. Let it finish in its own way the work it has begun. When the person is at last ripe for the experience, when the lines of growth have been focused to one point, when the imperfect line can no longer assert itself in the presence of the larger life that is seeking expression, the change comes, which means on the psychic side a new spiritual birth. Self-surrender, then, is often necessary in order that the normal tendencies of growth may converge and flow into harmony, and that the point of new insight may be, for the person yielding, the truest organizing center of life. It is a common occurrence that the new life comes in strange and unexpected ways. The amount of surprise, suppose we say, is an index of the angle between the direction of the will and the normal lines of growth. But the most vital point in the necessity of self-surrender has only been hinted. The exercise of the personal will is an emphasis of life in terms of the imperfect self. On the contrary, the elements of the old life must be swallowed up in the new synthesis. The point R, toward which the life forces are converging, must itself become the organizing center of life. The condition shown in figure 9 must give place to that represented in figure 10 above. Capital R is a new cerebral center of organization of nerve elements. The old brain centers A, B, C, D are now referred to it. From the standpoint of the mental life, R is now the ego, the new personality, in terms of which everything else is seen. As long as the old condition persists, the imperfect self being the point of reference, the truth of new life, R, was seen objectively. It must no longer be seen from without, however, but from within. Capital R is to become the embodiment of the truth looked on before the outside. 
I must become it, and it must become a part of me. Conscious volition before the change of heart is the willful assertion that life shall still be viewed through the old portholes rather than from a new vantage ground. It is God and sinful man striving against each other. It is at the point of self-surrender that the deadlock is broken and the man comes forth into a new world. The act of yielding in this point of view is giving oneself over to the new life, making it the center of a new personality and living from within the truth of it which had before been viewed objectively. We should almost be able at this point to anticipate the experiences following conversion, the newness, mingled strangeness and reality, buoyancy, joy and peace, which accompany the event of entering life on the new plane. They will be taken up, however, in the next chapter. We are in a position now to appreciate the function of faith in conversion. Faith is the next step after self-surrender, or even the accompaniment of it. The full assurance never comes until everything, old attachments, affections, animosities, any clinging to the old life is given up. The person is completely relaxed. Then faith comes in, which means that the soul is in a receptive attitude, that it is left open, so that the new currents of mental activity may flow together into one great stream. One throws oneself completely on the world will, so that one may become a receiver of its truth and an organ of its activity. The amount of faith exercised is an implicit recognition of the discrepancy between the old life and the new, or rather the power which is behind the new. The heat and bustling and worry and agonizing give place to a confident assurance that the larger will will issue forth. Be still and know that I am God, was Jehovah's command. A certain music teacher says to her pupils after the thing to be done has been clearly pointed out and unsuccessfully attempted, Stop trying, and it will do itself. Holmes disavowed having written his best poems. They were written for him. In conversion, the assurance comes after the person has given up his will and thrown himself trustfully upon the larger life. End of chapter 8